You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to a really special episode of The Nero Show featuring Alex from Peak Talk. Are hookless rims the scourge of the bike industry? Have we reached peak aero bikes? What would he be buying in 2023? And ultimately, is the bike industry completely overpriced? All right, let's get into it. So is it is it all a, a big conspiracy, Alex? Because we, we seemingly are sitting here and being told things are getting faster by a certain percentage, by a certain watts. And I don't know, there seems to certainly be a, a narrative, not only on YouTube, but I don't know, potentially in the general public that this stuff is, we're, well, look, we're all getting a little bit cynical about it. So J- JC, have yeah. you got some, some, some numbers specifically with the specialized you want to have a little chat about? Well, this is what I wanted to get into with, with Alex, because uh, the question I have is what's a, what is a uh, marketing what? Versus an actual what? So if we if we go back, let let's run through the uh, the S Works Venge savings development. So original uh, Venge Vias super aero spaceship looking one. When that came out, right. they said that the bike was responsible for two minute saving over forty kilometers. Fast forward, the Venge comes out, and they say that. The Venge is eight seconds faster compared to the outgoing Venge Vias. So we're at two minutes and eight seconds. And then the SL8 comes out and it's 3.5 seconds faster over 40 kilometers than the previous Venge. So if you've kind of skipped forward, the SL8, they're saying at least two minutes and what's that? 12 seconds faster than the orig- original Venge Vias. Um, and that Venge Vias, I mean, if you look at it, just, I mean, to my untrained aerodynamic eye, I'm struggling to see how there's two minutes and 13 seconds there. Have you have you looked at any of this stuff, Peak Talk? Right, well, that's, that's uh, quite, quite a tricky one to put me on the spot. I've just had to pull <laughs> the calculator out quite quickly. Uh, uh-huh. But i think actually from from my own experience of aero testing um which is um you know I hold my hands up it's all done outside because i don't really have access to a velodrome i did a bit track when i was younger but not anymore um i haven't been in a wind tunnel as a cyclist so all my numbers spreadsheets excels and the the use of some you know pitot tube sensors that i've got i i can kind of correlate my claims to the bike industry claims of the standard kind of 40 kilometer time trial so mm-hmm. i've got a good figure of it in my head of how many watts get you how many seconds and 
we're generally talking about that around that speed of about 40 to 45 k's an hour in my experience and this does correlate quite well with the bike industry claims that you're talking about four seconds per watt on average okay mm -hmm. so if we go back to your example just a minute ago of the original venge the really ugly looking one where the brakes didn't work compared <laughs> yes. to the tarmac sla 131 seconds basically you said two minutes 11 seconds there or thereabouts 131 seconds um now that's 33 watts if we do that four second per watt kind of calculation that's 33 watts from the bike and you know handlebar system cockpit alone i do find that quite hard to believe that there's 33 watts in in, in difference and give you an example my my road cda my road position if i'm riding in a comfortable kind of semi-aero hoods position which i can sustain well, for a, for a sportive or grand fondo or even a race, like just riding quite comfortably on the hoods with the arms bent a little bit. Not aero hoods, but, you know, just general riding on the hoods. Versus the drops, my drops is only 15 watts faster at 40k than my hoods position because I've, I've optimized it more for my hoods position, right? So for most people, that's a massive difference just from body position. And you'd normally say that body position alone is going to get you a much faster gain. A much, a much like bigger gain than changing the bike frame. It's quite well known, well it should be well known. Um, so hoods to drops for me is fifteen watts. Yep. And Venge original Venge to SL eight is thirty three watts. I can't, I can't, I just can't see it. I just don't believe because that that original Venge was supposed to be the aero pinnacle when it came out, and that wasn't even that long ago. Like there were aero bikes around, you know, there were aerodynamic bikes around. Even going back to like the original. Cervelo S1 aluminium bike when Cervelo was like still pumping out really top end engineering stuff they made an aluminium S1 it's called the Soloist before that and it had actually a proper knacker uh, aerofoil for a down tube it wasn't even cam tailed because at that point they were actually paying to extrude proper aluminium aerofoils and that was an aero bike that was way before the Venge Vice so like it's not as if the Venge Vice wasn't uh, you know it was an aero bike so I can't see how the SLA is 33 watts faster than that and obviously you know full disclosure uh, specialized aren't claiming 33 watts that's what i'm doing for my calculation oh sorry and also that's faster than the, the, the so that speed improvement was over the tarmac so that was kind of stacking up the improvements there from from yeah from the tarmac yeah yeah i mean i i can't i personally i can't i can't i can't see it looking at the bike but mm -hmm. aerodynamics are i mean there's a very few people in the world that can see aerodynamics I think one is like Adrian Newey. He's an F1 designer. Okay. Um, couple of guys in aerospace that I went to university with. But apart from that, like you think one thing looks aero and that's what we have to be really careful as consumers. Yeah. And Jesse, I've noticed you doing this in videos before is you're saying, oh, how can it be aero? Because it doesn't have the drop seat stays. It doesn't have like a full aero fall on the down tube. Yeah, that's kind of what we're, we're sort of led to believe, but actually aerodynamics work, like if you actually do the CFD and actually do the wind tunnel stuff half the time, something completely different happens to what you'd expect, to what you think. And that's the weird thing about aero is you can't see air moving. So you just, you can't second guess it. Everything is unique. Everything has to be tested in a wind tunnel. So sometimes a bike won't look aero, but actually it's interaction with the other parts of the bike and it's interaction with the rider as a system making more aero. So it's all like claims at the moment, which is why... You know, trading standards can't go after Specialized or Cervelo or whoever because it's so hard to nail down what they are claiming in, a, in like a product specification. So to follow that along, are you suggesting then that a, a, 
air, the aero effect of a bike or impact of a bike would change from rider to rider? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think there are two, that's a good question. There are two elements to that. There's the interaction element and then there's the whole kind of how much of a proportion of this total CDA is your body versus a bigger person. So let's let's just, not being rude, let's call you little and large at the moment, okay? So Chris, you're little, Jesse, you're large. Chris, you're going to have a bigger proportional benefit of riding an aero bike than Jesse because the bike for Jesse is a smaller proportion of the total CDA package, right? So that's the kind of proportionality side of the argument. Um, and the other side of, of the argument, yes, is interaction. So how does your body shape change the airflow of the bike versus a bigger rider? I think that's a much smaller part of the package. That's a much smaller part of the equation. In general, most people have similarly sized legs. Um, they're reciprocating. Um, they move in the same manner. You get that sort of yawing air past the seat tube. Um, and I think the interaction is, is less of a problem than the total like CDA size of your body versus a bigger rider or, you know, Jesse versus Chris. So if you're a, a sprinter, like a world tour sprinter, who's maybe somewhat vertically challenged, like Caleb Ewan, you want an aero bike um, because the bike as a part of a total CDA package is a, is a big part of it. You know, whereas if you take on the other end of the scale, someone like Ganner, I mean, he's not a sprinter, but a big sprinter. We don't really have big sprinters anymore because they're not really aero. But if, if let's just say you take a bigger rider, right? Their bike becomes a smaller part of the CDA package as a part of the whole package um, because everyone's riding 700 seat wheels. The bike isn't scaled up with the rider size. So there, if you're a bigger rider, your body CDA becomes more important. If you're a smaller rider, your bike CDA becomes more important. Still, your body is the driving factor, but it's more important. Yeah, but that's interesting because it's it, it sort of almost in opposition to that. And I was talking um, with Chris about this before, is that, okay, very anecdotal, but you might be able to help us here, PT. Um, so Chris at Heffron Park, Maroubra. Chris has been racing Heffron for the last, since I started cycling. And I've been looking at his right. data since he started. 50-minute criterium. And now, back in the day, he was doing it on the least aero, legend, Italian custom geometry road bike ever. Least, no aerodynamic features at all. Uh, a specialisma rim brake climbing bike. To today, he, yeah. he's doing it on a, a Canyon Air Road with 60mm DT Swiss wheels. And I'm, I can tell you, Chris Miller at Heffron Park <laughs> does between 305 and 315 normalized. He did that. Eight years right. ago, and he's doing that today, regardless of the bike. <laughs> okay. And obviously in there, the sa there's going to be some saving. And I'm not some conspiracy, oh, my rim brake bike from 10 years ago is just as fast as my air bike from now. But yeah. I, I just don't see if we saw anywhere even close to the claims that we see for these bikes, his normalized power for, this, for, for these races would drop because he's Chris is at Heffron almost every second weekend. I got a lot of data points. But the normalized power for these races, it's the same. It just hasn't moved. Yeah. And so I just yeah. don't know where where have these watt savings gone? Because yeah, I'm yeah. not seeing it. Yeah, I mean I'm not I'm not familiar with the with the circuit, but I believe it's a circuit race, is that right? Yeah, it's a rough like a crit, crit with a bunch of corners. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and okay, so let's let's start start of all. Let's take 
First of all, let's take the aero savings from the brands with a massive pinch of salt. Mm -hmm. Second of all, the aero savings from the brands are basically like a solo breakaway mm -hmm. or an ITT. Okay. Um, so if Chris if Chris is riding around 305 normalized and basically sitting in the bunch for the whole race, he is not at 45 kilometers per hour airspeed. He's maybe at zero kilometers an hour airspeed if he's in the bunch. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to get any cumulative time savings if you're in the bunch if you're if if you if you're going to jump the sprint at like 200 meters to go then you're using the bike's aerodynamics and you might pull like five ten centimeters in 200 meters so hmm. yeah if you're a guy that's okay. getting a solo breakaway or you're doing road individual time trials like in the in the uk we have um every wednesday night all across the land between like march and september we have all the little clubs doing time trials it's like it's what we'd love to do it's pretty geeky and everyone gets into it from young to old boy girl whatever um if you're doing that on a road in the road bike category for sure you want an aero road bike because you're in that high airspeed from the gun mm -hmm. to the end mm -hmm. if you're in a bunch race um you don't really need an aero bike and especially if you're not lining up for the sprint or you're going to get in in a breakaway because there's no point in that race where you're using the bike in a high airspeed environment um, hmm. we've seen it time and time again GC winners don't use aero bikes all the time um, they have more recently because the brands are like really pushing them to use like the S5 for, for the Jumbo or whatever but you know there was a there was a time when the, the GC winners could choose from the climbing bag they could choose whatever they liked and we see it all the time whereas the GC guy attacks on the climbs where aerodynamics is not so important and the rest of the time they're being pulled along by their team train more you know they don't really need an aero bike so the aero bike claims don't forget everyone ha i have to can't emph emphasize this enough if you're not riding solo there's literally no point <laughs> in an aero bike because the penalties the heavier like up until very recently they've been super uncomfortable because the seat post is like 50 mil deep and doesn't have <laughs> any deflection in it and then uh, yeah, the, 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 there are other things like the integration, the cables are a pain in the ass if you travel to like overseas races. Like I used to do quite a lot of like amateur races all around Asia when I lived in Asia. Like I'm so glad I had a TCR. I could whip the handlebars off, whip the, you know, the stem off like super quickly, pack it in a box every weekend and go somewhere else. Like I've got a new, a new gravel bike. Just, just, I've just received a gravel bike with like integrated this, that, and the other, and I've put it off. I've put off building it for like three weeks already because <laughs> I can't be asked. But don't you think that's where? Isn't that where the conspiracies start, though, Chris? Because you start to go, okay, we're told these bikes are faster, and then you look at your actual riding or racing, and you're not really seeing it, and you can start to see why people go down the conspiracy route of we're just being sold a pile of BS because the stuff that they're marketing on doesn't actually really matter for. 99% of the people that are going to be buying the bike. You put a video up. I was, I was having a deep dive, Alex, through some of your content. Sorry about this. I went deep. I went very deep. Um, and you you put one up that was like peak peak road bike. And I think it's your your giant TCR yeah. 2016, I'm going to say, maybe. Uh, it's 20. I think it's a 2016. It might be a 2017. I can't remember. And again, now. not not yeah. to not to do the old the whole sort of old times were so good back in back in whenever. But fast forwarding then through to to now, like, have we reached? Do you feel we've sort of reached peak 
given what the UCI gives the manufacturers, are we at peak aero bike? Is there nowhere to go? Um, I think, I think that, I mean, there's so many, we, I, this could be a whole nother call <laughs> for me in terms of the UCI limits and how we could optimize. I think in, within the UCI regulations, which are very, very strict, although the trend over the last couple of years has been loosening, um, we are peak aero, but with a caveat of still being able to produce them to the cost that the brands are comfortable with. Um, they're, they're, I don't know if you've ever studied like the UCI frame builders manual, but you basically got a couple of pages set out and it gets even more complicated if you're doing, you know, track bikes the, or, the or time behavior. trial bikes. But if you look at just road bikes, you've got... <laughs> Plain, plain material. <laughs> you've, you've got, it will put you to sleep if it's on a log or flight, but you've got basically a load of boxes uh, from the side plane that are um, limiting where the tubes can go. And the whole point is it has to look like the bicycle as we know it. And I've gone into this on another podcast a couple, well, a couple of years ago. I can't remember which one it was now, but in some regards, I think it's a very important thing that we keep the bicycle looking like a bicycle because of the whole socio economic symbol of the bike um you know it it connects people it takes people to school it earns people you know they're living and you can still identify with something that is being used as a basically a fun sport so for the whole kind of symbolism part of the bicycle i think that's important but that's where it ends because it's very limiting on the aerodynamics it's limiting on what we can do in terms of production um there are there are a few loopholes which I've been talking to someone about how to get a really wacky bike through these um, limits, but I can't go into it because it's under NDA. <laughs> because there's a massive loophole in the UCI manual that I don't think anyone has exploited yet. So watch this space. That's all oh. I'm saying. But right. no, it is very very it's very very limiting on what you can do from basically the side profile of of a bike frame. So I don't know if you've ever noticed it, but if you one one frame which is quite obvious in in terms of this is the Canyon Air Road or the Orbea Orca Aero and even the old Canyon Air Road or even the old Venge as well. I don't know if you've noticed, but in a size bigger than a fifty eight, the rear wheel cutout stops following the rear wheel. There's then a sort of weird gap at the top. Interesting. Where the the cutout kind of diverges away from the tire, and that is literally because that seat tube has to remain in that rectangular box going up from the BB to the saddle. So it, on the bigger sizes, you can't have the fully encompassing rear wheel cutout because it would be too wide to fit in the box. It's ridiculous. And that's why those big sizes of the aero bikes with the rear wheel cutout look stupid because of the, the box dimension on the, on the UCI manual. So little things like that just kind of, it's like, come on, you could, you could, bend the rules just to make it look like all the others in the range all the other sizes but no you can't you have to like limit that cutout so it fits in the rectangle it's it's all pretty dumb to be honest so in terms of design like you, obviously we're, we're limited by where the uci have less to, left us but I, I feel like you have a really interesting take on the quality control side because obviously you are receiving a lot of this stuff day to day how are you kind of seeing that playing out um, well, first of all, just for any background viewers who aren't completely familiar with my background, because I don't actually mix my sort of professional life with YouTube, so my cycling YouTube at the end of the day is a hobby. My 
professional background is in is in engineering and i have experience to talk about this stuff because i've implemented composites projects in china in chinese carbon factories for mainly like automotive and robotics industry so that's my background that's my qualification to talk about qc in in carbon stuff from china and it's first point i would make is that it's not limited to bikes it's uh it's kind of endemic around other industries as well um and it requires a brand or a company on the whole unless it's there are maybe some factories maybe i could count them on one hand where i would put a project in with a with a drawing pack and a design release to say this is what you need to make these are the tolerances and i'll leave it to you i could count those factories on one hand and i probably know of 30 so the others i would say need a professional engineer in there checking like you just need a qc engineer and in there checking all the time um and then i think we joe joe from china cycling mentioned this on the podcast as well and it's something i've i've well i've dealt with in my professional career as well as the you know stuff i get sent through the youtube cycling channel to to review is that the covid years where the factories were in sort of semi-lockdown uh, there was a big gray area whether they were open or they weren't and the the western brands are pushing for like maximum shipment fulfillment because cycling is taking off during covid there's no stock but the comp- the, the the factories are offering limited supply they are you know getting stuff out the door that probably shouldn't pass qc and so this is where we've got this big warranty loop coming back around now three or four years later and we're still we will still see more the, the, the warranties from the brands are just going through the roof and that's not just from cycling that's from everything automotive robotics wherever you like and the 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 problem is compounded because during covid you didn't have your western guy traveling to china so much you know, i used to do it i used to travel from hong kong to china maybe once a week to check projects and you know check the qc engineers are doing their thing couldn't go full lockdown so of course there are problems associated with that but even now hopefully fingers crossed well I actually had covid last week but covid's gone now Mm-hmm. more or less um, as, a, as, as a kind of commercial problem <laughs> we're still seeing shit sent out from the chinese carbon factories and it's not just carbon it's the basic stuff as well like i don't know if you've seen i did a wheel review yep. uh that went up on my channel probably mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago now when you see this um from quite a close i wouldn't say colleague but quite a close friend of mine he's been on your show and the qc of that wheel set was horrific um and you know there is there sometimes in the comments as like a cycling youtube reviewer you get oh you're getting a peak talk special mm-hmm. you're getting a hambini special where you you imagine you know before it gets shipped off with fedex there's a guy there you know or, you know there's a team of people there like, inspecting every little detail checking all the spoke tensions you know checking the tire doesn't blow off blah 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 well i can get a guarantee on this wheel set there was no peak talk special it was warts and all um and i i love reviewing bike parts i love getting free stuff when i was a kid you know i've been cycling since i was like eight whatever my dream was to get like free stuff it, uh, any kid who grows up cycling you're like it would be amazing to be sponsored it would be amazing to get free free bike parts to test that dream's coming true but like it's not as glamorous as it as i thought it was because i really want these young companies to do really well really well but sometimes i i get stuff and i i have a template which i send all the brands that get in touch with me if they if they write a decent email i'll send them my kind of template back and question number one is this a release product question number two is it the final product if those questions are no i'm not interested because 
it, they're just using me for like free beta testing. Um, and without an NDA and, and without like a contract, things can get messy if I say it's shit. And that's happened in the past. Brands have been jumpy about what I've said about their wheels and stuff. But the long, the long-term effect is they actually realize they need to pull their socks up and, and do better. You, you referenced this in, in that video. You, it was like a passing comment. You said something along the lines of, I get the yeah. feeling I'm almost being used as a quasi quality control engineer here. Like you're being sent stuff that, oh, let's just, let's, let's, let's run this past him. And I actually had a firsthand experience of that when I was trying to get the, the uh, fast sports handlebars, the ones that you, you've been running. And in my correspondence yeah. with them, yeah. it, I was constantly being told by the fast sports representative that Alex at Peak Talk has given these the rubber <laughs> stamp of, of approval. Have I seen his this on that and that on this? So it's 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 interesting that you're yeah. being, I don't know if you're aware of this, but you're being used as that sort of almost that control. I think, I think sometimes I am, uh, but I'm, pretty sure nine times out of 10, they just think I'm going to give them a review, a glowing review, and then try and get sales commission. Um, and that's why I've said to other YouTubers, like, do not rely on sales commission alone because it will change your narrative. You'll start liking brands before you've even got the product. You'll start getting hooked on brands. Even if they send you something shit, you'll be like, oh, well, they're paying me a bit sales commission. So I'm not going to say that in the video. You can't have, if you want to be a proper independent reviewer, you cannot have your sole income as YouTube commission or ad money or anything. So what I'm trying to do is like, which is which is why my videos are so low rent and sporadic. Sometimes I'll do one a month, sometimes I'll be four a month. It's because I have other things going on to pay me my living. So when I do YouTube, I can be completely open. And sometimes, like going back to your, your question, I think most times the brands just think they're going to get a great review because I'm just another YouTuber and they don't actually do the research into the channel. Um, and then sometimes the brands, I think, do send me stuff for kind of testing, but they don't tell me it's still in beta or they don't want me to sign a non-disclosure agreement. And now I'll put a video out on it saying it's shit. And then the brand goes crazy and sends me an email the next day and says, hang on, hang on, this product's not released. You can't say that. Like, take the video down. I'm like, well, where was the NDA? Where was the embargo? You know, it's on the website with a price tag. It's for sale, mate. So <laughs> it's a product. And and yeah, it's like, and, and I'm not having a go at Chinese companies. Like this, this happens in European companies, like not in, in my experience, not in like the kind of engineering companies, not like Switzerland, Germany, or UK. But I've had it with suppliers from, from other countries in Europe, um, in, in other industries. Um, but it does seem to be like I have, I'm not having to go at Chinese companies, but I have a lot of experience in working with them. It seems to be the sooner they can get a product out, the better. It doesn't matter if it's not finished. What is the design release number? What version point? What is it? Are you sure this is not still in beta? And one of the things I I went to Eurobike and uh, I really wanted to see the L2 group set that's been quite you know famous on YouTube because Trace Fellow's got one, Joe from China Cycling's got one. Uh, I think David Arthur's even got one now, which he bought himself. And I said to the guys like, "Why are you here at Eurobike? Are you looking for distribution?" And he and he and uh, I made sure I was speaking to sort of like the one of the directors, I think. And he said, "No, 
we're, we're just selling on AliExpress. I was like, oh, okay, because there's lots of different AliExpress adverts for this. And also there's a bit of a language barrier, so I had to sort of dumb it down a bit. And he was like, yeah, 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 but it's always the final version. I said, well, how does a customer know like when the next version is out? And he goes, oh, yeah, well, it doesn't matter because everything's got a warranty. So I'm like, uh, in my head, I was like, okay, I'm never buying it. It just sounds like a right mess. Like, you know, at some point in development, you need to go for your alpha, do your beta, release like the production one and draw a line in the sand and say, right, these are all the final drawing numbers. These are our suppliers. This is our backup suppliers. This is a final like bill of materials. Boom. Nothing changes from like one to product 10,000 because that's what the big companies do when they do it well. Like, okay, big companies like Shimano and, you know, SRAM and Campy, they have, they do have QT issues. Look at all the SRAM, uh, look at all the Shimano cranks that snap. Yeah. And, and Shimano are kind of ignoring it still, but they, they have process control. They have like design release control. They know that crank number one was the same as crank number 10,000. Whereas these young Chinese companies like L2, I'm like, they don't know what they're shipping out. I, I don't believe they, like, if I got in touch with them and said, like, I bought this from this AliExpress website with this URL, with this seller, like, I don't believe they'd know what serial number kit I was using. And like, how can you diagnose problems? How can you, it's just, it's just from, from my industry, like, that's just like a complete no-go. Like, I'm not buying it. <laughs> But I'm, t I'm, I'm conservative like that because that's like what my engineering background has told me. Yeah. I mean, ultimately is this, that's, it's one of the, the, the big almost roadblocks for them to, to make that next leap into, into the mainstream conscious of us to have, you know, this, this is the final version released mm -hmm. now. Here it is. Here's the launch date. And, and out it goes. I think there's a, we're so used yep. to that. Maybe it's just a Western yep. world thing. I don't know. Potentially it's different um, in Asia that we, yes. we're so used to the first generation, the second generation, and we, we get out, we can get our heads around that. Whereas this constant well, evolving product, yeah. it's hard to know when to, to jump in. Do you know what I mean? And then that's, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. At the moment, even though I, I still don't know what they're going to do that's going to yeah, make me think, okay, yeah. now's the time to buy. But I know that the really, like, the, the really kind of baffling thing for me is that they've got everything on their side, maybe apart from the marketing and the customers are quite remote. So from my personal experience, the domestic market in China is not buying L2. The domestic market wants the high-end stuff. They want Jura-Ace. They want SRAM Red or Axis. It's L2 is actually sold majority to overseas, like these cheap group sets are for overseas people because the Chinese are, they want the branded stuff. And it's kind of annoying because they've got everything on their side. Like they've got the production, they've got logistics, they've got numerous methods of shipping which can avoid customs. Yeah. I don't know how they do, but they do. Um, and they've, yeah, they've got all that at such a low cost compared to the other players. But they're just missing a little bit patience and kind of maturity to think. Okay, this is this is draw a line in the sand. This is V one. This is what we're going to sell on this platform. Exclusive distribution. Everyone knows they're getting the same thing because I I think yeah you're right. Like as Western consumers, we're quite in. We we like to be settled. We like we like to know like you're getting the best price. You're getting the best warranty support. I kind of feel like Jesse, you're almost the person. You're the you're the person who would buy this. You're 
more, potentially more than Alex and myself. I don't know. Maybe I'm speaking out out of line. But what what would you what what are you waiting to see? Like if if you were going to to go down this route, Jesse, is there is there are you waiting for the 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 peak talk video that says, "Yep, this is it," or is it uh is it a Instagram like I I. <sighs> Uh, I mean, per- I wouldn't. Go- I know it seems like I might go this route. I, I person not for something electronic. I wouldn't. Uh, not no. I wouldn't do. I wouldn't go this route yet. Um, what would I be waiting for? I think it's a similar thing oh, that that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Christmas is a local having for something electronic. For at least from my point of view, it's low. Like I want to buy this from a shop. So and that has yeah some sort of local distribution. I wouldn't want to be just buying it online uh, and having no real recourse aside from paying expensive posters to, to send it back if something went wrong. So, ah, probably not the answer you wanted, but for me, yeah, I would want, I would want wanting to buy this domestically. I kind of feel like we can't have Alex on and, and not mention the H word. Uh, potentially, Jesse and I should just leave the the camera for half an hour and and say the word hookless, and we'll just trigger you and off you go. But uh, given given the fact we were <laughs> just talking about quality control and, <laughs> and the industry and conspiracy theories and the rest of it, obviously, obviously, Jesse and I were talking about it the other day with um, old mate and his exploding rims. Um, <laughs> can, can you? <sighs> I don't know how to even frame this question because it's a piece of technology that doesn't seems to solve a problem that doesn't exist for me. Can, can you maybe sell this to me or just continue the continue the issue? I'll I'll also say, Chris, this also feeds the conspiracy because this is just another check in the people getting stitched up by the bike industry box. So I'm gonna just throw that out there that the poor conspiracy people. They're not the bike industry doesn't help themselves. Yeah, but if there is one thing I would say, look, I've got I've got no problems with people making money as big corporations or companies like that's what everyone seems to do. Like there's no problems with people making money, making things cheaper, making processes cheaper. As an engineer, it's my job to make things easier to make, lighter, cheaper, stiffer, simpler to produce, more reliable. But from my background, like we never compromise on safety. If there's a small hint of a safety concern or an increase in the safety risk because of something else getting cheaper or lighter, then you take two steps back. And this is probably the one thing in the in the bike industry where I do believe like they're evil. <laughs> I do believe there's a slight conspiracy with this that it's so pointless. It doesn't need to be there. Like engineers, some. Sometimes I think SRAM is just pure evil, like pure, pure Dr. Evil or like Mr. Burns in the suit with the shoulder pads, just kind of looking down and be like, it's too expensive. It's too expensive, too expensive, like tightening, tightening, tightening. And that's, yeah, that's what, you know, getting lean. SRAM has been heavily like consulted on like leanness in every way, like apart from the marketing, it's a load of waste of money, but like. The the whole hookless thing is like the first argument I get on this when I when I give hookless a bad time and and I think I don't know if you guys realised but that video about the hookless uh, mm-hmm. tire in Mallorca blowing oh, up has been oh, removed has it? I don't know if you've, oh. if you've, no, I look for it again. 
I look for it. Cycle speed. I look for it again today. It's gone. So either extra light or Conti Conti have thrown some euros at Mr. Cycle Speed or thrown him a paella or something. Anyway, it's gone. So I'm here to carry on blowing it up. Um, The hookless, the first pushback I get from hookless is like, oh, well, cars, automotive use it. Planes use it. You know, like uh, tractors use it, blah, blah, blah. And like the application is completely different. So that's, that's the obvious thing to mention. And without getting too nerdy into tire technology, um, automotive, everyone's car tires nowadays are what are called radial tires. Uh, but with bikes, we're still using what's called cross ply, which is a tire technology basically slightly less primitive than a solid rubber tire without any air in it. Cross ply tires are kind of the first step into pneumatic tires. And they were originally on all the cars back in like the 30s, 40s, 50s, when pneumatic tires became a thing. Uh, because it was easier, produ- easier to produce them. It, it had the sidewalls had quite a lot of stiffness because of the amount of cross-woven um, fibers going from the sidewall all up and around the top of the carcass and back down the other side. And if you've ever got your Conti five thousand, you've scuffed it up along like a join in the concrete or or the curbside, you can actually expose yep. those yep. those yep. fibers, mm-hmm. those nylon fibers. And that is one of the that is one of the cross plies that you are scuffing, you're exposing it. So it runs. I've done this little cut up to show you. It runs from this sidewall all around the other side to this sidewall, and it forms the base of the tread as well. And those are sheets of nylon or cotton that are laid up normally at like 25 degrees to each other. Um, and why we don't use radial pliers? Radial ply is a is an automotive technology which your modern car will have, um, and they offer better rolling resistance, uh, more supple ride because you don't have the plies in the sidewall. The plies are only on the top of the tread, um, right on the, the sort of top of the carcass. And in general, radial plies like car tires, plane tires, truck tires, they have wire beads and steel belts inside the tire to hold the tire geometrically correct. And the problem with, mm. this is all going back to hookless, don't worry. The problem with using um, hookless tires is that they are less uh, sorry cross ply tires which are bicycle tires and hookless is that cross ply tires are less kind of dimensionally stable so the it's, it's harder to make the total circumference and the total diameter as accurate as you would make a radial ply tire and in general we don't like heavy uh, wire beaded tires so if you go to your local bike shop or like Bunnings you can probably buy like a, a wire beaded tire mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. that doesn't fold or if you go onto Wiggle you'll see if you look at some cheap tires you'll get a folding version and a wired version okay now if we were okay to ride wired tires and no one cared about the extra weight I would completely run hookless it would be fine because those wired tires are harder to damage they're way more dimensionally stable um, than a normal folding tire because a folding tire I don't know if you can see here but it's got a Kevlar bead or a fabric bead and obviously they're they're seriously strong but in production it's a slightly higher QC risk of that not being the right circumference and if it's slightly loose it's going to blow off the rim easier Um, it's easier to pinch them if you have a really bad like snake bite impact you could actually pinch or stretch the Kevlar bead whereas a wire bead you wouldn't be able to do that. It's pretty much set or is lower risk. So if yeah, if we're if we're happy to go back to riding 
heavy wire beaded tires i wouldn't have so much of a problem with hookless but going back to the whole you know automotive analogy which is what people think or people say oh well you know use them in your car so can't use them on the bike well it takes a couple of tons of pressure to mount a car tire do you want to be doing that at the side of the road do you want to have to call a van out with a guy with a like hydraulic press to come and push your bike tire off no so that's why the hookless thing on road works because the the beads are generally steel and they are so stiff you need tons of pressure to push them on and off the rim in terms of like otr tires so like tractors or big earth moving vehicles the beads are again hookless but you have such a stiff and dimensionally solid bead circumference you can't even use a massive lever to hook the tire on you actually have to unbolt the rim into three parts <laughs> and bolt the rim around the tire again do you want to be doing that on the bike no so what I'm saying, this comes back to conspiracy thing. Is the bike industry slightly evil? Yes, because I think they're still allowing us to use tiny little crappy plastic levers to get these things on. But we've gone away from the fact that they the bead should be like super stiff. You shouldn't be able to do that. Right? If I had full confidence in hookless, the bead would be so stiff and of such an exact circumference, you wouldn't you be able to mount it by hand. Can you see any other rationale to... So Sorry, go on. If you can mount it by hand with a tiny little lever... I was just going to say, if you can mount it by hand, sometimes without a tire lever, mm. it doesn't take much to get it off again. It's the same, you know? So if it doesn't take much force to get it on, it doesn't take much force to get it off. And that's why I still don't trust road hookers. Mm. It's too easy to get on to be solid. Is there any other rational reason? Why is this being sold to us other than a cheaper manufacturing process? I mean, trying to take some form of positive take from it i mean is is there a circumstance where this is beneficial <laughs> no I'm, I'm scraping the barrel i think there are possibly applications where if you're going for a very aerodynamic transition between the tire and the rim it could be uh slightly better so that the tire doesn't get pinched in so much at the bottom because of the extra hook However, the caveat to that is you go and ask Ganner if he's riding 73 PSI on his front wheel, he'll probably laugh at you. So if you're talking about aerodynamics like TT bikes and hookless, mm, no, because first of all, they don't want to use a rim that's that wide. And second of all, the pressure would be too high for it to be safe. So I think that kind of erodes that argument. The other one is mount, like in mountain bikes, it's quite common to have hookless. And does it help? protect the rim in impacts where you maybe pinch the the rim against a rock or a square edge possibly having the hook in there in a little corner is a possible stress raiser uh but it's it's i can't see that many benefits to be honest apart from production costs and on production costs when i was in hall nine at frankfurt where you've got all the Chinese wheel companies, I asked them, do you care about the hookless thing? Are you going to start? Because none of them are making hookless. All the wheels I get sent from the Chinese companies, you know, they are all being like, all intents and purposes, the cutting edge stuff. Let's not lie. Like they're, they're all doing carbon spokes. They're running super, super lightweight wheels that we've not, you know, a couple of hundred grams lighter than the Western companies. Okay, the QC might be a bit if iffy, but they are pushing the boundaries, but none of them are pushing hookless. And they're the guys making the things. Um, and I, a couple of them I asked at Eurobike, I said, are you doing hookless to save a bit of money? And they're like, no, like we do the factory so the money's not really an issue. Like it's not really worth doing it. 
So there's your answer. Like I asked the factories, they said it's not worth us doing it because we own the production. So we're not scrabbling for that like cost cut because for them it's not really much of a margin difference on the final retail price. So it's interesting you said about our consult, like our consultants doing that. Just from a business point of view, it would be like why have why did Giant start just specking hookless on all their bikes? Like <laughs> I wonder if that was an in-house decision or literally they hired some consulting firm to come around and audit their business process and they looked at that and went, ah, you can save $15 a bike in a production cost and over that many units, it's worth it. That's that's my that's my conspiracy thing again. Like I think it's a consulting company that's come in and leaned out the manufacturing. Like I, I, when I was much younger, just after I graduated, I did a kind of consortium-based project with a, couple of the different engineering companies in the UK, like defense companies. And, and one of the companies on the consortium was a, basically an engineering consulting company. Uh, it was, it was a quite interesting, but they were basically leaning out all the processes, like looking at every step on the production line, every step of the R and D process, try to save money. And that's, it, this is textbook what they would do. Does it need to be there? Are you selling 99% of your products to races and like cat one races no you're selling it to mass market individuals who just want to ride to the coffee okay make it for that it makes sense like it makes sense to make it for the, the 99 set so it's a it's completely a commercial decision and if you're the one percent of like performance cyclists like we three are the niche of cycling although we think you know getting 50k views on youtube is good we are the very small minority of the, the fucking idiots that look into these tiny watt savings and most people like just go and buy it because it's it's that. Just in terms of um, new bike prices overall, I'm just interested in your personal opinion because we see two camps. One camp being we are absolutely yeah. getting taken for a ride. The prices are ridiculous. It's a bike made in China. There's a thousand percent markup. Yada yada yada. And then the other people being like, well, it's R and D and. It's, it's worth it. Like in your experience, per, where's what's your personal opinion on that? You know, bikes costing thirteen to fifteen thousand US dollars now. Rip off, or that's just what it is. Well, personally speaking, because I come from mm-hmm. different area of engineering, I think is a rip off. Um, I am happy with my current bike, but if I was to go and buy a new bike tomorrow, I and I've said this for like probably before COVID, actually, like. I genuinely don't know what I would buy because I, 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 could, I can afford to buy a new bike, but I just generally wouldn't yeah. want to put it into a bike because I just don't think they're worth it. Um, I would be looking for something secondhand. Um, my my last new bike was actually my TCR Advanced SL, which, funny enough, is still the current like model year shape. But I bought it as a frame only. I bought it on a clearance frame only. Um, build out myself, like hunted around for a couple of months for the part bargains. Um, I bought one of the last 11 speed Dura Ace group sets available in the UK before it went to 12 speed. Uh, I had it shipped out to China, uh, to Hong Kong, so it was VAT free. So I built my current bike up, which I consider a top end race bike, Dura Ace. You know, it weighs 7.2 kilos in its next cell. Um, I've already built it up for like three and a half thousand pounds. So yeah, what would I buy now? A second-hand 
previous generation air road i think they were really good bikes um they they nailed a mm -hmm. lot of the aero tests mm -hmm. from like tour magazine in germany um they have you know by the rim brake one it's got quite a simple direct mount rim brake setup that had a nice one-piece handlebar which was quite reliable uh i didn't hear of any sort of warranty problems with those bikes that had for an aero bike at the time it had a very skinny seat post so it's really comfortable to ride it had like I think it had a seat post, you know, similar mm -hmm. to the Ultimate. Mm -hmm. Well, it was a D-shaped one, but it was a kind of similar size. So it was really soft. And all my mates that had them, you could see actually sometimes like the bigger guys would like bounce around on the saddle when pedaling a bit, maybe a little bit too soft. But I think that was a great bike. Sorry, what year model is this? Um, Just so I can see. Oh, I see what one you're talking about. What else could I say? Because I can look uh, at the seat post. I can't, I can't remember, but it would, it would have been 2016 to 20. 2020 yep, I perhaps yep, i think yep. was about that yeah um and it, it they did do a disc brake one but the cables were external uh and there's a direct mount rim brake one as well um yeah really really good bike uh i can't remember what else i, I said now um uh i've always liked tcrs but yeah they're not they don't have those aero cues that the other bikes have um but yeah honestly i do think current bikes are are a rip off um and I, I actually left a, com a comment on, I think, one of one of your previous uh, podcasts about the SL8, that you could build the SL8 to pretty much the same spec as the S the top-end S-Works one if you bought the frame only and build it yourself. Because I think I think in yeah. the UK, the frame only is about £4,000. I don't think I'm going to have to spend six or £7,000 on parts. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, you, buying the frame only yeah. option was it used to be like the laughing, like why would you buy the frame only? It's going to cost you more money. Whereas now, the total bike price has gone so high that actually buying That's the frame only option and doing it yourself is kind of cheaper. <laughs> and okay, you might not get, you might not be able to put the Roval CLX whatever because they are, you know, you have to buy them the front and the rear separate, and it's going to cost you like four thousand US. But you could buy a similar high end MV or dare I say it, wind space hyper. But it's all about the package, Alex. It's the package. That's how Specialized gets you. You know, you've got to, it's that's the row valves are optimized to go with that frame. And, and if you don't get those bars, the wind is, the wind's going to blow up when it hits the front of your bike because you're not riding the optimized frame. Like this is, and it, yeah, this, this. But those, those guys buying the top end one, I, I genuinely think the guys buying the top end one no. are not the guys watching our videos or your podcast. They are bowling into the S Works concept store, being like, "Yeah, what, what's 100%. the latest and best bike I'm having?" 100%. It. The, 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 I think the people watching this are more like your hype, yeah. your Windspace hyper dudes. So they don't really care. They'll bitch about all the S Works until the yeah. S Works stop, but they'll never buy one. So I kind of think we're like preaching to an audience that laps it up. But they're not the audience that are going to buy the S Works. I might be wrong. I don't know your demographic, but certainly, like it, certainly what it's like with my viewers. Like I love my viewers. Shout out to all you guys and girls. But you are so cynical, and I know you're not going to buy anything. You just love to have a go. So I think our audiences are different, though, Alex, because I I see a lot of the people that watch our show, and they're on, they're on a Trek, Altegra Di2, you know, a Madone. They're so probably different crossover well that's what most people are on i mean that's the thing with the prices it's it's not just the top end i mean if you just want to if you're buying a 
if you live in a town and your local shop stocks a trek, you're on a Ultegra Trek Madone for 10k. I mean, I don't know. Oh, that's um, that's interesting about like what you say about your local town. I think that's a very Australia thing. Like, it's maybe yeah, like what your local guy in the shop has got, or like what they what they distribute. And I, I very much get that feeling from watching a few of like GC performances videos. Like, his like area of suburbs are buying the stuff he sells. Whereas I think the UK market is really different to that. It's 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 kind of decentralized. A lot of it's online, and there's no kind oh, of like regional affiliation with a shop because they sell Cube or they sell Giant or they sell. It's it's like it's very much influenced by social media, and a lot of the bikes are just purchased online and delivered, or purchased online and then picked up in the local shop. I don't think we have. Oh, because I mean, I, I would push push as far as saying that there are parts of Sydney where certain brands don't. Like you can like ride into a part of yeah. Sydney and be like, oh, suddenly there's <laughs> more treks. And then, you know, yeah. we'll kind of laugh that like the northern beaches, oh, focuses. And, oh, okay. you know, yeah. you go south into the Shire. It's giants. And it's all yeah, because yeah. of the local distributors in those particular areas. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, w- maybe we have to, I can say, oh, I used to live very close. I used to live in Twickenham. You guys have probably heard that from rugby. Um, I used to live there, which is very, which is very close to, um, Tw- Twickenham is very close to Richmond Park. And that's probably the only place in the UK where you'll see two or three brands on mass: Pinarello, S Works, and Trek. I would say, but that's and that's not to do with like affiliation with distribution and shops. That's just pure money. Uh, in one of your recent videos, I saw you did an overview of uh, your mate's time um, bike, and I noticed you were all on fast sports wheels with alloy or steel spokes or whatever they're made of. None of yeah. you were running the carbon spoke wheels. I wanted to ask you this because I was running yeah. a, did a crit on my wind space wheels with the carbon spokes and then my Caden wheels with alloy spokes. And the cornering difference was night and day. Like I yeah. was cornering like an absolute Hubbard with the carbon wheels. Really? Where the carbon spokes. Regular spokes was, was felt so much better through corners. Yeah. And I don't, I couldn't tell if that was just a wheel difference okay. or. Is there a, or a carbon spoke difference, but the stiffness? Yeah. I mean, if you're going up doing a hill climb time trial, it's probably fine. But have, have you noticed that the carbon spokes are just too stiff? I must admit, my racing days are behind me, but uh, I have noticed. Uh, so not so much in terms of cornering, but more in just mm. the mm-hmm. sort of vertical ride quality. Uh, the carbon spokes. When I first got the first set of wind space hypers, what three or four years ago. Um, I did notice that I had to drop the tire pressures okay. to get the same level of comfort as I did on my old wheel, which actually made the whole thing slower because then I'm sacrificing rolling resistance through the tire because I've got such a stiff element as a spring in the wheel system. So my first reaction to the carbon spoke wheels is, oh, I don't like them because I'm sacrificing rolling resistance and dropping the tire pressure way lower than what I used to. Areas like, if let's say you lived in Mallorca, right? I'd love to ride the carbon wheels because on the majority of those, you know, main roads, they're super smooth tarmac. They don't get too much snow and ice, or they have lately, but this winter, snow and ice, breaking up the roads. Uh, but my my general go-to wheel for like UK roads and general crappy potholes and broken surfaces would be, yes, yeah, CX Ray steel spokes because because they're more, you know, they're more flexible. So 
up and down and side to side so I can actually lift the tire pressure a bit and go faster on the smoother sections due to improved rolling resistance. And then when I hit a rough section, I've got a bit of extra spring rate in the spokes. So, and I've always said this about bikes is that majority of bikes, particularly like Northern European roads where we've got all sorts of bad roads because they have to suffer, you know, quite big temperature extremes. Majority of bikes and wheels are too stiff, um, which in some respect has driven the whole wider tire movement. To, to claim back some of that comfort by being able to drop drop the tire pressures without getting punctures. Um, but it's, it's horses for courses. If you, if you live in a place with great roads, if you live in Abu Dhabi and you can ride Yas Marina Grand Prix circuit every Tuesday night, take take the carbon spoke wheels because they're aerodynamic they're light they're really stiff and you can still max out the tire pressures and not suffer from like back pain because you're being bumped around so much because that you know places like that just got you know surface like a snooker table it's super smooth but i'm at the point now where those wind space wheels i wouldn't even really want to use for a hundred kilometer training ride because they're just they're too too stiff but i never saw anyone if i'd known this before i probably wouldn't have bought them to be honest uh, is stiffness the right word or is it a lack of compliance? Because I would, I would have argued that stiffness, I don't know, this is just me, that, that means the wheel doesn't kind of like flex when you're putting power through it. Whereas I would say maybe compliance is the thing where it's the, it's the road buzz, it's what you're sort of feeling through the, through the wheel. Is that, is that fair? Jesse? Well, I, I, my experience is the lateral stiffness in terms of do they rub on the brakes when I'm sprinting are both the same regardless of the spokes. It's just that their compliance is worse in the carbon spoked wheel. I think I think you have to be really like careful with those words of compliance uh, and stiffness because everyone has a different um, definition of what compliance is. It's not something that we use in engineering that much. Uh, we would we would say you can break it down into two words: stiffness or vibration damping or vibration attenuation. So, stiffness or the inverse of stiffness would be deflection or flexibility. How much does something bend if you apply a load to it? And then vibration attenuation is if you put vibration in at one end, how much do you get out at the other end? That's the simplest way I can put it. Uh, now. Generally speaking, carbon wheels or carbon spokes will have a slightly higher vibration attenuation or damping than steel. However, yes. So, but it's 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 fractions of a percent, right? So if you if you took a a carbon bike and you you know you do your stiffness test on your carbon bike, so you put it sideways on a bench, you clamp it at the rear dropouts, you put a load at the head tube, you bend it down. And you and you let it and you let it vibrate. You ping it and it vibrates. the The steel frame will have less damping. It will ring for longer than the carbon frame, right? So that's that's damping, and that comes from basically the epoxy in the carbon fiber. In a metal frame or a metal wheel or metal spokes, you don't pretty much get zero damping. It's it's fully elastic, or oh, there's something like zero point zero zero two percent like atomic damping. With, with, with carbon fiber epoxy, you get a little bit more. The The problem with carbon spokes in the wheel is that it makes them so stiff. Any kind of extra vibration damping that the carbon epoxy is getting is you're not feeling it because the wheel is just transmitting every input and deflection 
up into the bike and up into the saddle. Yeah, there there is more damping in carbon fiber epoxy, but generally the added stiffness overcomes that, and so things feel harsher. I mean, mo- it's it, it it appears more premium in a wheel set if it's got carbon spokes. So I feel like it's p- potentially a step backwards if everyone, every brand, it's suddenly it's a race to have carbon spokes because it looks better in the description of the product, and then but actually it doesn't ride as well. It'd be a, in my opinion, it's a step backwards. For most people yeah but at the end of the day you know it's, it's it's horses for courses if if you consider the the wheel as part of the suspension of a bike um i mean this sort of goes back to being saying bikes are too stiff but we don't have any real suspension in bikes so we deal with basically just the tires uh the saddle the seat post and the bib the chamois and the bib is all part of like the spring in series system so essentially you've got many springs all in series adding up to the total deflection or stiffness of the rear end of the bike um and the wheel is one of those springs just in that series and if you've got a really really stiff wheel vertically you have to adjust the spring rate down of the other things you can adjust you can't really adjust your bib you could adjust the bib we could get a peak torque licensed approved chamois in our nero suit we can get this peak talk stamp of approval for <laughs> ass vibration dampening yeah you could get an extra an extra you'd get an extra thick one um for heavy riders because someone someone commented on my video that, that the other day which i thought was a really valid point is like a 50 50 kilo rider gets the same chamois as a 100 kilo rider uh and i was like oh yeah that's <laughs> that's a hundred percent different operating window like mm-hmm. how we how why have we got the same chamois you know like it's, it's it's crazy you you've done probably the most real world testing or the most relevant testing to what i can <laughs> suits or what my riding is would there be a i don't know like the the silver bullet is probably not the right yeah. way to describe it but you've tested lots of internal internal yeah. widths um tire widths tire pressures that kind of thing and ultimately what watching some of your stuff you seem to always come back to this thing it's about the the marriage of the internal internal um width of the wheel to to the tire and then the tire pressure kind of then is well, fits into fits into that bill so uh, this is this is a really long question when i don't actually have a particularly um, yeah. poignant end to it but is there a, is there Don't a know. A, a system setup that you've landed on yeah. that essentially is is what you've determined to be the most suitable for you. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's uh, again, this is this is what I always say as my disclaimer: it's horses for courses. Not, I can't suggest what's going to be best for you guys because. But what I've what I've settled on for me is is uh, quite odd. I would say I've I've, I've settled on a thirty two mil. Uh, sorry. Just drop something. Let me start again. Um, again, it comes back for horses for courses. What I suggest for myself might be the same as same as you, but from what I've settled on, and it may sound a bit different to most of you, is I got a 32 millimeter Conti 5K TR tire on the back, and I always run a 28 on the front. The same tire, but a 28 on the front. And the front tire is the main one for aerodynamics. And the main one which really needs to suit the rim perfectly for the, the ultimate, you know, best aerodynamics. And most of the riding I do on my road bike is kind of general training rides, all different kind of roads, some like light gravel sometimes on the on the road bike, 
Uh, but generally pretty bad roads, some very smooth roads. And then I do road bike TTs once a week on that same setup. And I don't want to have to change the tires. So the reason I've got 32 on the back is because I can, during the week, drop that down to 50 PSI and do 100, 120 K rides in pure comfort. And I don't really care about how fast I'm going. But then when it comes to Wednesday on the road bike TT, I can set the hoop stress of the tire. Now I'm saying hoop stress, not pressure because pressure is kind of arbitrary when it comes to rolling resistance. But I can set the hoop stress of that tire, the, well, pressure, the same as I can get in a, in a narrower tire. So there's literally no point in putting a narrower tire on the back. If the road is flat, there's no weight savings to be had. I might as well just add more pressure to the wider tire to get the same rolling resistance. And I, I've proved that with my AeroSensor. Uh, bicycle rolling resistance have proved it on their website. You know, the, the rolling resistance difference between a 32 um, and a 28 or a 25 pressure matched to have the same skin tension. And that's the important thing, pressure matched. Not the same pressure, but matched to have the same skin tension. The rolling resistance is exactly the same. So I might as well keep the the, the fatter tire on the rear because the error doesn't really matter. And I can I can still optimize the, the rolling resistance because that basically comes from the stress in the tire, the skin stress and the actual compound. And I found that the 5K TRs are the best tire. I'm not sponsored by Continental, but I really should be. So buy enough of the tires. They are the best tire for me out there. Like mix of longevity, puncture protection and ultra ultra low rolling resistance i don't know what they're putting in those tires to make them like that but they are a really fine recipe there are other tires with the same rolling resistance like the coarser speeds but they don't last and they're super fragile so uh turbo cotton are a bit better in terms of like lasting a bit longer but again quite fragile uh, and the 5k tr is just for me the best all round. now 28 on the front that's all dictated by the aerodynamics um I don't really need to go much fatter on the front, even though I'm like 88 kilos. I don't, I never get back from a ride thinking, oh, do you know what? My arms and shoulders and hands are really hurting. It's always my butt or my lower back that's aching. So I've never really felt the need to go super wide on the front. And a 28, I could probably go down to a 25, to be honest. Um, What's the internal rim width on the, those wheels that you're running? Um, 21 or 20.5 is what I go for the road bike TT. Um, again, that's if I was just doing like TTs or road bike TTs on a disc brake bike, I wouldn't choose to go that wide. It's just that's what we've got. That's what we're given. Um, I believe, you know, a slightly narrower rim on the front is faster once you go above 40 k's an hour. And the testing shows that. But I don't do the I don't do the road bike TT on my rim brake bike because the whole time I'm ride, riding my bike, I'm always testing something. Um so can you say sorry? I just I don't. Can you say that again? So the, at, at what did you say? At forty five k an hour, the narrower rim is more aerodynamic. Yeah, my my tests show about above forty. It's not even forty five. It's forty. The the narrower rim is pretty much always faster. And one, I keep coming back to this, and I'm the one of the fastest wheels I've ed, ed tested is the Windspace Hyper. Uh, the original one, uh, the Gen 1 Windspace Hyper. And now if you look to that now, even though it's only two and a half years old, if you look to that now, you would say, oh, that's that's old school, you know, it's almost V-shaped and it's it's narrow. I think that was 19, well, I say narrow. It's 19 mil internal and the new one, I think it's 20.5 or 21. And that's actually one of the fastest I've ever tested. Interesting. And yet the, the reserve wheels that I'm running 
have so they're set up as a wider front wheel so it's like a 25 mil internal 24 on the back and their claims are that the wider uh the wider front wheel is more aerodynamic and it's it's shallower so the rear is is deeper is that so but it's but the downside of that alex would be you have to run a narrower tire which people don't want to do these days is that why the why the reserve would be so wide so you can run a 25 or 28 so you can run you can run a wider a wider tire in general which is what the trend is going to but if you're talking about out and out speed of uh solo tt or solo breakaway you generally can't get around the physics that smaller frontal area will give you a smaller cda and (laughs) so we're back to we're back to conspiracy territory here because now you're saying well actually if you want a faster bike you should use wheels from five years ago because they'll be faster at the speeds that they're doing the testing at which is usually their testing's 45k an hour in the marketing yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it it's it's one thing for the pros and another thing for us because again, we the 90 like I said the 99% are buying a bike they can ride throughout all conditions. They don't really pay too much about, you know, the watts. There's the small watts here and there and they want some a front wheel that they can hit a pothole with a 32mm tire and it's probably not going to puncture them and then, you know, they'll get a last year that they've broken the rim or whatever. Um you can't cheat the physics. If you want to see what's fastest above a certain airspeed, go and look at what Ineos are doing on their front wheels. You know, they've got... I'm not I'm not going to lick Dan's ass too much because I do enough of that already, but they've got Dan Big. I mean, he knows what he's doing. Uh, <laughs> I, I speak to him quite closely, like most weeks, I would say. Um, so I do have some insider information, which um, he's trusted me with. But... If if a twenty five mil internal wheel was faster, Ineos would be using it. All the pros would be using it, but they're not, are they? So it's not faster. It's just not. And I, yeah, we can we can talk about conspiracy theories, but this is one where I'm stumped because I don't know why they're pushing twenty five mil as an internal width. Because my downhill bike's just over there, and that's got a twenty five mil internal front wheel. Wasn't it the first thing I said to you, Chris? When I saw you riding that bike, I said, you you are on a gravel bike. Those wheels, they're that wide. That's what it looked like. Uh, are, they, yeah. are they hookless? No. No. So the reserve ones are they aren't hookless? hookless? No. Oh, because the trend, the, trend, the trend for hookless is to go wider. So the volume increases, um, which, which is beneficial for... Uh, tubeless because if you've got a more volume at the same pressure you lose less before the puncture seals Okay. so increasing volume of the rim cavity you can increase the volume of the rim cavity don't forget without increasing the size of the tyre so let's say you had a rim with a super deep uh, bed it was just when you inflated it it took ages to inflate because you're basically just pumping up that whole pressure vessel you can still do that with a 32 mil tire, but you can get um, you, you have more chance for the tubeless sealant to do its stuff before losing all the pressure. So maybe that is one reason why you'll see. I mean, I'm just thinking out loud. I've not actually thought of this, but it's just a theory. I've just thought it. 
whilst we're chatting about it, maybe they're just trying to increase the total volume of the pressure vessel to help tubeless work on road. That's possible. I don't know. But from a pure like racer point of view, I wouldn't ever pick one that wide. Mm. And my, my, my testing of like my testing is it's not world class, but I've got an a pito tube which I've got laps and laps and laps and laps of data in on the same course with a the data engineer helping me validate all this stuff, Matt, shout out to Matt, is in Canada. Hey, and I've never tested a wide rim that's faster. The wider rims that I've tested have always been slower. Interesting. The caveat is the road is a smooth road and it's optimized for like higher tire pressures. If I was to go to a very rough road, then I'd need to drop the tire pressures to get like the vibrational losses down. And therefore, the wider rim and wider tire may be faster because aerodynamics is not so important. So it's not just about the aero, it's about aero, pure rolling resistance from the rubber, and then vibrational losses, which we haven't really spoke about, which is another massive part of tire pressure and tire size. Do you think this this is potentially where Jesse will Jesse's rim brake love affair will ultimately run out? Is it the is it the wider tires, the lower rolling resistance, this technology three, four years down the track that he won't be able to fit his calipers over it and he'll go, you know what? Gee, that does look a bit faster and a little bit more comfortable. Yeah, but you know, before we get on to that, uh, we haven't really mentioned this. Rolling resistance is made up of two things, like the, the kind of chemical Luff, not chemical, but physical losses in the tire called hysteresis, where you stretch it and it doesn't return to its original shape. That's hysteresis or frictional losses inside the tire. That's what you get on a pure smooth road on any tire. And then you've got vibrational losses, which are, let's say you, you'll go from a very, very smooth road at 40 k's an hour onto a really rough cobble section or a piece of rutted tarmac. You suddenly feel like you've hit sand. You slow down because all the kinetic energy you had just plane forward is now making you go up and down on the bike your whole body mass is moving up and down f equals ma it's taking force to do that and that force has come from your original forward momentum unfortunately vibrational losses mean you can't put that up and down jiggling of all your muscles and tissue back into forward momentum so that's why you suddenly lose speed when you hit rough sections and if jesse was to do like parry roubaix on his rim brake bike with 28 mil tires or 25 mil tires i don't know what you can fit through your calipers these days but there is there is a you know a crossover point where the wider tire at lower pressure for sure is faster on rough stuff because of vibrational losses and we see like in, in pro tours now like they're trying to integrate like more in like world tour racing they're integrating more rough roads they're integrating more kind of cobbles even in like non-cobbled races even more like gravel sections on certain you know tour stages well, they dropped a bit this year, but a couple of years ago they were trying to put gravel like down everywhere, um, and all those kind of rougher terrains where vibrational losses are really coming into it. Then it doesn't really help the rim brake bikes case because of the limiting tire widths. You're a YouTube engineer. You actually you're an actual engineer, but to, to us that just watch you through YouTube, you're a YouTube engineer. <laughs> So you were saying you, you, <laughs> you're working with uh, you don't don't give any details because I know you, you you had an NDA but working with some sort of bike company. Do you ever um, get worried about the bike industry when you get approached by 
brands to sort of do product development and stuff. But do they ever come in through... How can I explain this? Do they ever come through the front end of you as a YouTuber to get your engineering expertise? Because that, that's the way I saw it was... Here is here was a bike company or a brand who want to improve their engineering, and instead of finding an engineer in a classical way, they're finding a YouTube engineer, even though you actually are an engineer. Good. And it seems a bit amateur hour from the from the top. You got any insights on that? Um, yes, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question. I have had quite a few kind of like consulting projects that found me through YouTube, and they are approaching me because they know I'm an engineer. And they also happen to be in cycling. Um, one of them I did last year. Was it this year? No, it was last year, back end of last year. Um, I was approached by a Dutch guy, really keen cyclist, was approaching his retirement and he was a very keen sailor and he knows I've done marine engineering before. So he asked me to consult on a composites project for a racing yacht. So... Um, we designed a carbon freestanding carbon mast together. So, um, yeah, like I do get that quite a lot, and it is a good kind of um, advertisement for for engine my engineering. But a lot of the stuff on on YouTube is is uh, is it's difficult to like portray, you know, a, a CV or a career because if you go over eleven or twelve minutes on a video, you know, no one watches it. Um, if you don't kind of catch people in the first 30 seconds no one watches it <laughs> so it's it's a very very like what i say on youtube is a very very small snippet of my kind of background i guess yeah but yeah i've had um on the other side of it i've had a really interesting and i hope you know in the not too distant future you'll see you'll see this come to light but i've had a very well-known brand approach me from uh the youtube side just to do beta testing and you know it, was, it wasn't a chinese wheel company it was actually laid out as beta testing from the from the get-go with a proper contract ah. um nda all that yeah. stuff embargo and they they said to me like we don't we're not we're not using you for your engineering we don't want any of that we just want you to like ride this stuff report it every week and just be a beta tester um and that's come about from youtube that's, um, awesome. that's super and maybe exciting. they maybe they know that if yeah. if, if i do yeah, maybe they know that if I do have a problem in the field, then I'm a bit more likely to be able to diagnose and fault find than maybe just a you know a pro rider who will just get on and off the bike and just you know give it to his coach. Um, but no, they've and I met them at Eurobike and, and we had a catch up and they said like we we know you're an engineer, we don't want any like feedback. We just need to ride it like everyone else is, all the other beaters, um, and you know submit the data. So. Yeah, it's, it's it's really cool what has come about from that's, this. That's super positive. Like I, I, we often sit here and we whinge that that it's pro cyclists who get to be the the testers of all all the bikes, which is the most irrelevant person to be testing bikes that end up being ridden. So I'm I, that's that is a, a kind of positive bit of info that not only are they looking away from from that that clientele, they're looking at someone who has a little bit of influence but but clearly has lots of other cards they're bringing to the table as well it's very very clever from them as well because in, by involving me in the r&d phase or beta phase they know that i'm more likely to give them a great review when they do launch and then they've got one of their marketing videos already done so you know i know the ins and outs of the product i've been involved with it since day one 
and they've almost kind of got me hook and line ready to sort of plug it if it all goes well sell out so Bloody yeah it's, sell it's out actually was talk the... sold out <laughs> i'm getting in the comments get me in there <laughs> only if it goes well though <laughs> only if it goes well um and the 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 this was actually set up from the marketing department it wasn't their kind of r d team or engineering team i was approached to do the beta from the marketing wow. department so yeah it was quite a I don't know, clever, clever ploy yeah. by that. Um, because I, and, but I know for a fact that I'm, <laughs> I'm the sort of like average punter trying to squeeze in one hour every day. Sometimes at like six a.m. Sometimes on lunch hour. Sometimes like nine o'clock at night. When the other beaters are all like <laughs> pros, <laughs> doing thirty hours yeah. a week, and I'm str- and I'm struggling to do eight mm-hmm. or nine. Let's guess who is it, Chris? Can we? Let, let's guess. Let's guess. Ooh, I reckon. Yes. I reckon it's Kadex, Chris. I reckon it's Kadex. No, no, no. It's not oh, there. you're not. Okay. All right. <laughs> Any- I have no. I have no involvement with Giant. I never have done. I just like the bikes. Okay. Nothing. Nothing to do with them. I, I was going to say. Just. It's an interesting story because to me, it seems like the the Dan Bigham story is on along a similar lines of, at least from the outside, someone who just looked like a, an aerodynamics hobbyist. Who then seemed to have just amass a, a huge amount of testing and knowledge, and then inadvertently became a professional in the field through the most roundabout way it looked like. Now, obviously, you have an engineering degree and background, and you, you've done you've actually in reality done the opposite. But it looks like a similar, an interesting story in that something unprofessional led to something professional. Dan Dan was a an engineering professional before cycling. You know, he'd got an engineering degree, worked for. Mercedes F1 team so he was a, he was a professional but became such a valuable kind of talent in the sport that when when he was and I'm not saying there are not other great performance engineers in, in cycling teams but he was really like putting the cat amongst the pigeons and uh, um, is it cat amongst the pigeons or cat amongst the no, chickens? No the pigeons yeah there's pigeons Might have just made a new one definitely up. pigeons uh-huh. Your pigeons. Yeah, I mean, he was so disruptive to, to the, the sort of world tour scene, which is really traditional. Like like I've mentioned to you guys before, we've got domestic guys embracing all the latest aero stuff that are heavily influenced by Dan maybe five, six years ago. So everyone's got the S-Works um, Evade helmet, I think it is, and like the aero socks, super narrow bars, where all the world tour teams are still riding like 44. I mean, you got fucking Nibbly with his 20-inch 20, 20 shoulders riding 44 bars. Like... It, come on, we're dying, we're dying to disrupt this tradition of just these old like Italian dudes there with their like body warmers and their like Gucci pumps, just chilling, not actually doing any thinking. <laughs> like, and then it, yeah, it was, it was long overdue that someone like Dan got into cycling because you wouldn't get that, you don't get that in other sports. Can you imagine that in like motorsport in F one where everything was done because we'd always done it like that? No, you disrupt, you try and break the rules or not break the rules, but you try and you know. You get loopholes and stuff, and you start making gains, and it was like long over. That's why it does seem so amateur out because you just have these seemingly oddball kind of dudes that come in and just flip things on their head. <laughs> and it's like, how did this not happen before? Like, what are you guys doing? In a in a different side of cycling, is like another one of your guests, uh, like uh, Patrick Lancer mm-hmm. Rouge. Mm-hmm. No, I don't want to offend him, but some you know when he started, you got this geeky dude doing bike racing reviews. Um, from his bedroom but now he is the most qualified talent scout in mm-hmm. cycling 
that because he watches more cycling than anyone else. So he's become the hottest commodity in my, in my point of view. Like you have it in soccer, you have it in rugby, you have people paid to literally watch as many games, watch as many youth junior games as they can to find talent. I don't believe in cycling we have that. I mean, in Belgium, maybe, but in the UK and other countries in Europe, I don't think there's that level of scouting. But what he's done by YouTube is create himself this like commodity that he is the most valuable part. And um, yeah, it's like another YouTuber that's then got into cycling. You know, I think he does consulting with Jumbo. Yeah, we've only seen that. It's been the last five years. Yeah, it just came out of nowhere. Just suddenly these experts yeah. who were who were, yeah, yeah. who were seemingly just YouTube experts, but they're actually good. They're actually the best in yeah. the field. It's, um, yeah. How about a little bit of uh, quick fire? Unless, uh, I don't know, I've just written a few random things down here while we were chatting. If, uh, yep. if you guys I'm ready. Yeah. go for it. Go for All it. Right. Who's the better engineer, Peak Talk or Hambini? Peak, Peak Talk. Talk's a better looking Confirmed. one. Because yeah. I ride more. Confirmed. I ride, ride more. more. Yeah. Um, no, I know. To quick, quick note about Hambini, he's not the dickhead he comes across online. Like in person, he's super like, what's the word? <laughs> um, yeah, he's super like personable, <laughs> very, very patient, and actually a really chilled guy. He's not, it's all an act, the online thing. It's for clicks, but yeah, mm -hmm. down to earth guy, quiet, quite quiet guy, um, very practical. Yeah, super nice guy. I met him at Eurobike. But still can, I, I de, can I can I can I rapid fire this one, Chris? Because I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I um I got something similar to say because I think we get this a little bit, Chris. As we'll talk, and Hambini probably also gets this as well. Is you, you'll talk about a topic. We might talk about a topic on the show for, for YouTube, but you're <laughs> saying we're discussing it in a way that is fun and not too serious, and not covering every base. And then mm. people in the comments will come in and be like, "Yeah, but what about this?" or X, Y, Z like that. And I think Hambini probably falls into the same thing where you're saying something in a way that it's, you're not trying to tick every box because he's not writing a thesis on it. He's making a YouTube video on it. And it, it's more fun. It's more lighthearted. And I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm guessing he's, he's, he's nicer and also more knowledgeable in, in person than it comes across in a, in a YouTube video. Yeah, for sure. You can't, I mean, you can't win on YouTube. You guys know what the comment section is like. You put, all this work and hours and editing and setting up into into a 10 minute video and there are people never happy um yeah. <laughs> and you're like oh sorry i'll give you your money back but <laughs> you just can't win you'll always get people you know there there is a there is a style i think to you're right jesse to the sort of conversation that and even even this the way we're, we're, we're talking today that we're not tending we're not trying to answer all the questions we're trying to bring up subjects and that conversation can then continue to flow and, and people in the comments can then add their own opinions into it. That's perfectly fine. But we're not trying to be the the um, encyclopedia to every topic that we bring up. We, we purposefully sometimes <laughs> take differing opinions or leave things out to try and to try and have these conversations. Um, yeah, or or recreate it in a natural way. I mean, if we, we'll yeah. have a chat about a topic on, on a bike ride or something, and we're trying to recreate that on when we discuss it publicly. We're not. It's kind of boring if we then go and do an hour of research, getting every single fact, and just present it like we're doing a lecture. Like, what the fuck's that? Mm. So, yes, um, that's the that's what that's the style. Anyway, and most of it, you you'd get that, Alex. When you know when you present a video, you're not necessarily 
going to spend two hours giving every single little piece of data. It's fucking boring. <laughs> yeah, maybe I used to fall into that trap a little bit. Like I would present it like, you know, something I would do at work or a report. But actually then if you do that and you try and cover every single base, there's nothing to talk about in the comments. <laughs> so it's not worth it, yeah. It's not, yeah. literally not worth the time. Is Josh Tarling legit? Is he the next big thing? Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of people have... So if you don't know, Josh Tarling just got bronze in the elite ITT at the World Champs, uh, which was not an easy TT, was it? It was 50-something kilometers long, I think, or 50 minutes, mm-hmm. around 50 minutes long. Um, people are saying, oh, who's this guy? He's 19, he's come from nowhere. Well, he, he, he hasn't come from nowhere. He's been racing in Belgium since he was like a teenager. Um, he got silver in junior... ITT World Champs 2021 got gold junior ITT World Champs 2022 literally a couple of weeks ago he got second place in Tour de Wallonie which is like a UCI well, they call it two two point pro race in Belgium mm-hmm. and the guy who won that Ghana Ghana won that so it's yeah. like it's pretty it's a pretty big race um, yeah certainly not come from nowhere to, to silence a lot of people who just don't know him because they don't follow the sport really or they only know bloody Vingegaard Ghana. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, he's he's a, he's a big talent. Like he's, um, I think probably one of the biggest UK talents I can remember. Maybe since Pidcock came on the scene, because he's he's a big guy. Um, he's one point nine four meters, but yeah. he's um, he must churn some serious serious watts to be up there with like Remco and Ghana in the in the TT because his, his CDA can't be that low because just because he's so big, it's certainly higher certainly a higher CDA than Ghana so not not just because he's he's bigger but also because he is for sure not as optimised as Ghana because he's not had that level of support in his career yet if you look at his kit it's not the same as Ghana's bike it's, his position is not the same um, he'll, he will get he'll get to that level of support when he gets more results but higher CDA than Ghana which means higher watts than Ghana and then when you look at Ghana's watts it's like yeah, it's it's incomprehensible. Uh, yeah, what what were you what were you estimating Ghana was doing for the TP? Not the TP, sorry, the um the individual pursuit. So this is interesting. Just before I put this video out, I made a video go live on Ghana versus Dan Bigham IP World Champs, and mm. I calculated in that video that Ghana's um, sorry Dan, if this was uh, confidential, but I've just put it out there. I estimated Ghana's wattage between five eighty and six hundred. Dan confirmed to me that I was right. So there you go. Oh. Um, I'm not going to say I'm not going to say the exact figure, but Dan told me the exact figure. But it was between 580 and 600. So yeah, for four minutes, 500 and mm-hmm, it's quite big. Dan was a roughly 100 and something watts slower. Uh, sorry, 100 and something watts less than Ghana, and only a second. Uh, only no, not even well, same time, <laughs> same time. Yeah. 0.05 the seconds and 100 watts less. So if you, you know, the, the real geeks out there will put that into their Excels and find Dan CDA or power. Because Dan didn't use a power meter and Gunner did. Yeah, he had, he had our Siomas on by the looks. That just seems so amateur, doesn't it? You got this kid on yeah. our bike and just slap some Asiomas on. It's like, what the hell? <laughs> they've, they've got a custom crank set, which, which is a narrow chain factor. Um, on, on that bike on that Pinarello, the chain factor, uh, sorry, the, not chain factor, the Q factor is actually 118 millimetres, um, which is 
40 millimeters narrower than a road Q factor. So oh, wow. there is speculation that um, Ghana actually biomechanically would be, he needs actually a Q factor wider than that because of his hip size, I guess, his hip width. Yeah. Um, that the benefit of having that, yeah. I thought all the aero dogs run speed play, the aero pedals. He's losing, he's losing half of what there. He's, he's obviously got a higher seat if he's not running the low stack speed play conversion. Um, yeah, he's, uh, he's probably losing a little bit of CDA with, with the normal Shimano pedal with the Asioma in it. But I think maybe the Italian Federation needs to see his Watts, I guess. Uh, or his coach, it wants to see the Watts mm-hmm. because normally in an IP, no one needs a power meter. You, you don't ride to power. You just get your head down, smash it, and you listen to the, the guy at the side of the track uh, for the splits. So well, you're not even allowed to have a head unit, even if you're recording it. No, ex- exactly. So yeah, I, I, maybe he just needed it for the biomechanics. He, he, maybe the, the the new crank is too narrow, and he needs it slightly wider to get the biomechanics right. Did we have a beef? Did we, Jesse? Um, Peak talk and and I did. I did a reaction video to to him and Dan Bigham a while ago. Yeah, I don't know if you remember that. You got, when he was so the story was he did the hour the British hour record. Oh, yeah, 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 I remember. Yeah, I did a video. Interview, it interview wasn't it because he he said he couldn't afford to get into the testing pool or didn't or was making a point by not getting in there. So it wasn't, he didn't actually break the hour. Yeah, that was it. Yeah. Because it wasn't certified. Yeah, it wasn't sanctioned. And I kind of caught him out on it because he's, and now I, I feel like I'm vindicated because now he works for a world tour team and has every resource he could ever want. And just what, a year and a half ago, you couldn't afford to get into the testing pool? Did we have a beef over that? I don't, I don't remember us having beef. I I made a reaction video and then you left a you left a comment. So that yeah, that's an officially a beef. Yeah. Oh okay, maybe you're just too <laughs> maybe you're too sensitive, mate. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that just about covers it, uh, Alex. Thank you so much for your time. Um, we covered an absolute heap in that. Obviously, there's there's going to be more to come out of this, and potentially we can try and have another chat later on for in sure. the year. So thank you so much no for problem. coming on. Enjoyed it, Jesse. Thank you very much for your time, Thanks. and uh, so yeah, much. we will see you all real soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.